Okay, so I repeat my welcome to all of you for this evening organized by the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, we are very uh, honored to have our dream team tonight, dream panel, uh, to discuss the end of uh, multiculturalism. And um, so I'm Catherine Oda, I'm the chair of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm a visiting fellow at the Department of Philosophy here. And I'm French, as you can <laughs> notice. And, uh, so, uh, the end of multiculturalism, you know, this has been officially uh, announced by both uh, David Cameron and Angela Merkel. Uh, so it's over, uh, but I think uh, there is more to it, as we, you will discover tonight. Um, so there's a lot of uh, popular um, uh, views discussed in the newspaper, in the media, used by politicians about what it means exactly. So I think we need a good look at the question. And for that, we have tonight Professor Tariq Madoud whom I had the pleasure to meet and work with a long time ago, so I've seen his uh, research <laughs> developing. And um, so he is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship in Bristol, at the university, and he served on the Commission on the Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain and the IPPR Commission on National Security and on the National Equality Panel, which reported to the UK Prime Minister uh, in 2010. So he has written a number of books and uh, he has a new a copy of the new edition of his Multiculturalism, a Civic Idea, so where he really tries to show that there's no antagonism as popularized in the media between citizenship and multiculturalism. And um, so, in fact, the, the very fact that multiculturalism is declared dead is a sign of its potency. So it's really <laughs> going in that direction. Professor Anne Phillips, who is the Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science at the LSE and the director of the Gender Institute here, is also a leading figure in the field because she has... Um, criticized and argued with uh, some understandings of multicultural policies from the point of view of uh, gender, um, uh, gender justice. And so in her multiculturalism without culture, uh, she is highly critical of the way culture, the term culture, has been used. And uh, she um, thinks that there are exaggeration of cultural differences, but there should be a view of multiculturalism without culture, which might be more uh, useful for um, a notion of citizenship. And uh, last but not least is Professor Cécile Laborde from UCL. He's Professor of Political Theory, and um, her field is really the question of secularism and uh, laicity and she is the holder of a research grant on is religion special? So she will look at the uh, question of multiculturalism from the angle of religious rights, religious equality, 
And uh, her focus is the nature of the state, the modern state, the modern secular state, as um, a multi representing or uh, acting for a multi faith society. And so her latest book is um, dealing with the hijab controversy in, um, in France and elsewhere, Critical Liberalism, published in 2008. So I leave you, I think, for the, uh, the panel to now present their views. Uh, Tariq will talk for about 15 minutes, and then both Cecile and uh, Anne will comment. And then they will discuss among them, and then we'll open the discussion to the floor. Thank you very much. I managed to get it off the screen straight away. Well, while that's being sorted out, maybe I, maybe I could just... Yeah, do, would you like yeah. to retrieve it? I'd just like to say um, uh, I'm very pleased and honoured to have this opportunity to uh, participate tonight and, and very honoured to have such uh, distinguished um, colleagues as, as discussants. Um, I thought I'd change the title to Is Multiculturalism Dead, which is the title of, of, of the event. But look, I've got another title here. And I think the answer to the question, Is Multiculturalism Dead? No. But I'd like to split, as it were, that uh, question into two questions. The first one being, what is multiculturalism? And then we can ask, in what ways it is dead, if at all, and in what ways it is not dead. And I, because I don't have time in just 15 minutes to do both of those things, I'm going to leave the question about its death or non-death for discussion. Um, because at least I'd like to think that I've given you some idea of what my view of multiculturalism is before we proceed any further. And so what I'm doing here is offering an analytical framework for understanding multiculturalism as a mode of integration. So the first question then is, what is integration? And secondly, what do I mean by modes of integration? So what is integration? And I'm going to have to rush through all these things, but I hope, I hope it's still quite intelligible. So of course, when we talk about integration, we think about things like you know, integration in terms of equal rights and equal opportunities and particular sectors of society, like the workplace, like uh, the ability to participate in the political process, uh, issues around housing, and so on. But I think that integration is incomplete if we only think in terms of sectors, if we just add the uh, different sectors together. I think that there has to be a macro-symbolic uh, level of integration as well. And I've got this quote on the slide from Gerard Bouchard and Charles Taylor's uh, commission that they produced uh, for the province of Quebec, saying the symbolic framework of integration 
identity, religion, perception of the other, collective memory, and so on, is no less important than its functional or material framework. And that's really what I want to address in, you know, the remaining 12, 13, 13 minutes. And this level, this macro-symbolic level, is particularly relevant because I think the sense of crisis about multiculturalism uh, and integration operates mainly at this level. So I turn then to modes of integration. Well, it looks like I haven't done that here. Uh, Maybe it's the next slide. Oh, yes. Okay, so um, this, this is what I mean by four modes of integration that I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk. I won't say anything more about them, just flag them up at the moment so you you can recognize what I'm going to talk about. So if these are modes of integration, then integration into what? Well, I want to say integration into a national citizenship. I think most people, that's what they understand when they talk about uh, integration. And some of the core ideas of citizenship are you know, nicely expressed in the French revolutionary uh, slogan of liberty, equality, or fraternity, which, of course, we can also uh, paraphrase or rework as inclusivity or unity or something else. And these ideas, obviously, are very general ideas, meaning that they're open to lots of different interpretations. And people uh, argue about these ideas all the time. So I'm not saying that I'm necessarily going to offer very uh, clear, discrete uh, interpretations. Rather, what I want to say is that, actually, if I am right in saying that these are the key ideas of citizenship and integration is about integration into national citizenship and multiculturalism is a mode of integration, then the key political ideas behind multiculturalism and its critics are the same ideas, namely these ideas. Of course, differently interpreted and contested. And as I shall seek to show, these ideas then can be a basis for evaluating the different modes of uh, integration. One other value of this way of doing it, which I'll just note in passing, is that it clearly shows that the the multiculturalism I'm speaking of is, to use a certain uh, vocabulary, is universalist. Because a lot of people think multiculturalism, in fact they often say the problem with multiculturalism is that it's a form of cultural relativism. Well, not on my understanding it's not, because it appeals to exactly the same ideas that its critics uh, appeal to. Okay, so let's begin with the first mode. I'm going to go through them quite quickly till at least we get to multiculturalism. So assimilation. So this is where difference is seen as a problem, and one of the reasons it's a problem is because it can lead to discrimination and conflict. So the idea is to make everybody the same, treat everybody the same, give everybody the same rights. That's quite clearly an appeal to a concept of equality. What, what it is for everybody to be the same is informed by the next bullet point, namely by a strong, homogenous national identity, which is clearly an appeal to an understanding of fraternity. 
So we've got equality and fraternity here, but what about freedom? What if the people who are being asked to assimilate or being required to assimilate or possibly even being made to assimilate don't freely assimilate? What, what do we do with them on this, on this understanding of integration? Do we make them? In which case, that's a, a major deficit of uh, liberty. Or if we don't make them, then the model might not be very effective. It may not be efficacious. And actually, equality. Assimilation is not that good on equality either, because from the word go, it di- divides citizens into two classes. Those who are the norm, those who are already integrated, and those who are not, and need to become like the first group, which presumably is, you know, in a country like Britain, the white majority. So that's already two classes of citizenship. Hence, in the 1960s and 70s, in countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, Britain, the Netherlands, and so on, people began to look for an alternative mode of integration to assimilation. And the one that most people began to look at, I call individualist integration. This tries to improve on the equality deficit of assimilation and also to make it more liberal. So it emphasizes two-way change. It's not just the minority that has to do all the changing. The majority society and its institutions have to be made non-discriminatory. They have to be made more inclusive. So we need an active anti-discrimination program, laws and policies and various kinds of political leadership in that direction, especially in relation to socioeconomic uh, integration. One implication of this is that individualist integration is not difference-blind, whereas we saw with assimilation it was difference-averse, and so we had to smother difference, we had to erase difference. Individualist integration is not quite so difference-averse. It recognises that to have proper uh, equality uh, goals, we need to find out whether we're coming closer to achieving equality, in which case we need to monitor the grounds of difference on which discrimination takes place. We also need to create positive images where currently negative images are doing the discriminatory and exclusionary work. Moreover, especially in Britain but other countries too, we see that individualist integration which might in the 60s and 70s have focused only on racial equality begins to get extended to cover ethnic equality and religious equality, but not extended to cover equality between groups of people. These are all individuals that are being given, uh, that are the bearers of rights and their rights are being in some sense, identified and met. And integration is conceived within a national, liberal, democratic citizenship, which, you know, is one, one form of uh, fraternity. I turn then, as a kind of further development out of this, uh, to the third mode of integration, which I call cosmopolitanism. I know other people use the term slightly differently, so this is just how I'm using it. It builds on aspects of individualist integration by focusing on the everyday experience of mixing 
and of changing, of people changing, of people um, borrowing, of people becoming hybridic, of people uh, valuing something that they hadn't valued before, or creating something new through cultural, cultural exchange. London, obviously, is a very good example of this kind of uh, everyday experience that cosmopolitanism wants to uh, infuse uh, its political uh, ethos with. No one is to be defined by their origins. Not by, defined that way by the majority, the majority saying to people, oh, you know, you are black because your ancestors come from Africa, or you are a, uh, an Indian because your grandparents came from India, or you are Asian because we think so, or whatever. Not only to be defi- not defined by the majority, but nor are individuals to be defined by their community. Rather, what we should be focusing on and encouraging and promoting are new and multiple identities. But it's fair to say that cosmopolitanism is very hesitant about national identity. What is the place of national identity? And so it's not clear on fraternity. But we might say it seems very attractive in relation to freedom and equality. But actually, I think it is quite limited in terms of freedom and equality. Because some people have stronger identities than the ones that the cosmopolitans cherish, than the ones that the cosmopolitans want to encourage and promote. You know, which are kind of multiple identities and mixtures of identities and, and contextual identities where you can pick up an identity and put it down when it's not the one you want to be wearing. But some people have identities where they emphasize that they are black or woman or a black woman. And they don't mean, oh, in this context. They mean in most contexts that are significant, that are salient. And that is central to them. Not just one of multiple features that they put on and off like um, hats. If so, if some people have identities like that, why, why don't we allow them to organize on the, on the basis of that in terms of social life but also in terms of politics? Because after all, and this is the next bullet point, we do allow people to organize on the basis of some identities and some interests, above all economic interests. People can identify as, um, well, people with a certain occupation, you know, minors or university lecturers or uh, civil servants. People can organize on the basis that they represent uh, certain uh, industries, like digital industries and so on. We don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem with people organizing on the basis of nation, like Wales or Scotland, or region, like the Northeast, or county, like Yorkshire. We don't have, in many contexts, uh, problems with people uh, organizing on the basis of gender to fight for certain uh, uh, opportunities and for uh, certain kinds of rights. So if that's the case, why don't we allow, you know, the ones that we focus on when we talk about integration, those post-immigration identities, to also be as they wish to be in public? Why direct them, channel them in one particular cosmopolitan direction? Especially if allowing people to organize on identities of their choice, which they believe are important and central to them, gives people power and confidence to participate, which clearly 
is one of the uh, goals of equality. So we should recognize that we're dealing with a multi. We're not just dealing with a cosmopolitan understanding of identities, but a multi uh, kind of identities. And for the sake of freedom of equality, we really need to take the multi seriously. Because there's a danger, otherwise, that one kind of identity is being privileged and encouraged. And that then finally brings me to the fourth mode of integration, which is what I understand as multiculturalism proper. And, but do note that we've come to this through appreciating the equality, liberty, and fraternity deficits of the other modes of integration. And these are some of the key features of what I understand by multiculturalism, that there are different bases of identities. You know, color can be one, religion can be another. There are different kinds of identities. For some people, the kind of identity that they think is important to them involves endogamy, marrying other people within that group. For other people, it involves no such thing. It might just involve solidarity against racism or Islamophobia. But none of these identities, even though they have different bases and they're of different kinds, should be privatized. That is to say, there should be freedom of choice. If people want to make their identities private, like, say, some gay people want to make their sexuality private, that's fine. But it's not for others to tell people, oh, your sexuality has to be kept private. Your religious identity has to be kept private. And I understand by multiculturalism as various forms of political representation, informal and, and formal. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for, for discussion as I don't have time to go in for it. And I notice I missed out equal respect, which I take to extend to not just individuals, but also groups that individuals are, are members of. But of course, there, there is at least you know, one kind of problem that critics of multiculturalism have identified uh, over the last decade or so, and that is that these kinds of communities I'm talking about can be inward-looking, they can be mutually suspicious, breeding conflict, which clearly is the very opposite of fraternity. So one of the things that people have responded to, which they often think is a, a critique of multiculturalism, but I think we can see it as a kind of corrective of multiculturalism, as a kind of rebalancing of multiculturalism, is to emphasize community cohesion, at a local level, and nationally to emphasize the importance of shared national identity. But what kind of shared national identity? Because not any kind will do. Well, it mustn't be top-down. It mustn't be one that stigmatizes some in the population because they don't have the right heritage, breeding, and so on. It should be inclusive, plural, and forward-looking. But why does multiculturalism require a national identity? And I think it's fair to say that multiculturalists themselves are ambivalent about this, i.e. They're, they're divided about it. I think myself that citizenship, which of course is about belonging, is about membership, and therefore has built into it a notion of fraternity, that citizenship by itself can for a lot of people be very dry and unmotivating and unenergizing. And I think we need something emotional and imaginative to give support to the liberty, equality, and fraternity of, of citizenship. 
something which therefore in one sense is more than citizenship but is a, an accompaniment and a support of it, or it should be. I'm not saying it always works like that. It should be. And I'm thinking of things like Danny Boyle's Olympic opening ceremony of last July, where he created an image of what he thought was to be British today. And lots of British people turned around and said, yes, that's fantastic. Thank you for providing us with an image of ourselves. I mean this kind of thing when I say that we need something which is more than citizenship. We need an imaginative way of uh, remaking and pluralising national identity because that too is part of what I understand by multiculturalism. I do, as I said at the start, I do think multiculturalism is alive. It's taken some bashing, but I think it is alive. But I'll leave that for the discussion. Thank you. All right. Um, all right, thanks. Thanks very much, Tariq. Um, I mean, this, uh, for me, this is a debate within some substantially shared parameters. Um, I mean, I agree, I agree with Tariq that um, it's important to start with what is multiculturalism because I think a lot of the criticisms of multiculturalism are based on either uh, misrepresentations of what multiculturalism is or kind of weird notions about what actually is practiced, which just don't correspond with the reality. I also agree with, uh, with his critique of, of a kind of assimilation uh, that presumes that incomers must make themselves facsimiles of earlier inhabitants um, in order to be treated as equally, which I suppose in the case of Britain would mean you know, we'd all have to kind of become a bit like the kind of you know, pre-Roman Britons uh, if we could just find out what those first inhabitants were like. So, I mean, my differences really arise somewhere between those other three modes of integration that, um, uh, that you're talking about, because I don't really feel myself at home with any of these. Uh, like... Like Tariq, I attach more weight to group identity than the individualist integration model does. Um, I find cosmopolitanism attractive, but in some ways rather unpolitical. Um, And while I I share much of Tariq's critique of the privatization of group identities, I want to kind of home in on the point that, that you said you would leave for discussion, which is this kind of question of the kind of informal and formal representation of identity groups that is an important part of your understanding of multiculturalism. I think that needs a lot more unpacking uh, in order to address particularly concerns about gender equality, which are the ones I'm going to focus on. (coughs) Sorry, a bit of a cold. Now, there's nothing... um, I mean, the idea that people mobilize on the basis of their group identities is, to my mind, neither a problem nor a surprise, right? Uh, As Hannah Arendt once said, if one is attacked as a Jew, one one, one must defend oneself as a Jew. If you're attacked or discriminated against on the basis of your sex, sexuality, religion, um, uh, you know, ethnicity, of course that group identity is going to become a very significant part of the way in which you you see yourself, the way in which you mobilize politically. And indeed, of course, you're going to want politicians and policymakers to take account 
of the concerns and, and uh, interests of the group that you now see yourself as part of, um, and to listen to you as members of that group rather than just as random, detached individuals, right? So, of course, group identity is going to be an important part of the way that, the way that we uh, organize in politics. But, of course, we have to bear in mind that you almost certainly disagree, and possibly very strongly, with many of those who make up your group. Um, in all groups, there is very considerable internal disagreement and my main concern, the main thing I want to focus on, is that the kind of uh, informal, but particularly formal representation along the lines suggested by Tariq Madud threatens to silence or obscure that internal disagreement. Now, this is the worry that um, is discussed by academics as the, the minorities within minorities problem. That is the kind of the, um, the women adherents of a patriarchally inclined religion. Uh, the gays and lesbians who've grown up in a culturally conservative community, um, the children whose parents and parents' parents and parents' friends uh, all regard corporal punishment as a norm. The worry is that these subgroups won't be well represented in the kind of the process through which a kind of a possible multiculturalism is enabled to represent group needs and group interests. Uh, the worry is that formal representation of the groups will tend to favour those who already occupy positions of power and influence within the group, those who currently seem to be the authoritative voice of the group. Um, now, if there were no inequalities or differences of interest within a group, none of this would, would matter. I mean, any of us could speak for our group if there were no differences of interest or no inequalities. But assuming there are, and we know there are, um, how best to deal with that in one's vision of a multicultural society. And I should say I completely share with Tariq the idea that what we're talking about and what we have to talk about is a vision of a multicultural society. The question is how best to deal with these kinds of inequalities. And I, I think it's worth thinking about this in parallel with thinking about the underrepresentation of women in politics, a different kind of question, but one that I think throws up some of the kind of the points that I'm trying to draw your attention to. We live in a society that treats the two sexes differently and unequally, as evidenced in all sorts of statistics, uh, including the uh, continued extraordinary imbalance between the two sexes when it comes to who takes the major political decisions about how we live. Uh, the world average at the moment is that women make up 20.4% of the world's politicians, elected politicians. Uh, in the UK, we've kind of reached 22.5%, which is not exactly a stunning kind of level. Uh, we're joint 57 in the world league table with Pakistan. Now, many argue, and I'm one of them, that we're not going to be able to change that kind of astounding imbalance between the sexes in terms of formal representation uh, without some kind of uh, gender quota, some requirement uh, that those selecting candidates for election have to select either equal numbers of men and women or some kind of specified minimum number of women. Uh, now, the aim of that, of course, is to get more women's voices in politics, and the reasonable expectation is that when this happens there'll be more attention paid to matters such as uh, how the police deal with cases of rape and domestic violence, uh, the differential impact of cuts in welfare budgets uh, and, or government spending on women, 
the various ways in which public policy needs to be changed in order to address, as it should do, equally the needs and concerns of both women and men. So this, all this is very like, in some ways, it's very like Tariq saying we need more informal and formal representation of group identities in politics. But I should say that those who argue for something like gender quotas in order to change the pattern of political representation don't, on the whole, feel happy with the idea that the, the object of this is to achieve the representation of a clear or single women's interest in politics. That is, very few of the people who argue um, for changes in the, the systems of political representation of women believe that you could say that the outcome of this, the object of this, is to achieve the representation of the group women, right? And the reasons that we don't think this are, are pretty obvious. Uh, you know, we, we, women are a group in one sense. Um, you know, a gender-ordered society makes us a group in one sense. But we know that as well as facing you know, different pressures and constraints from men in, in some senses, we also face all kinds of different pressures and constraints from one another, uh, differing according to socioeconomic condition, age, sexuality, religion, uh, ethnicity, culture, and so on. The idea that any one woman can speak to or even know what all these women want or need is absurd. And since we don't contest elections with segregated uh, electorates, you know, women voting for women and men voting for men, and, you know, I don't think anyone in their right mind should argue for that, it's only through kind of informal meetings and pressure groups and campaigns that women politicians can form their ideas about what women want. Now, to bring this back to the question of, of multiculturalism, for me, the kind of the message of that illustration in relation to women, the message for me is clear. We do have to do something about the underrepresentation of particular groups of people in politics. We have to do something about the underrepresentation of women in politics. And we expect that in doing so, we'll give women, we'll be, women, more women will be giving voice to previously unaddressed concerns and issues. But we shouldn't fall into the mistaken notion that this is about representing women as a group, right? I mean, that's where, to my mind, the mistake comes in. Apply this to multiculturalism. It seems to me, I mean, I suppose I'm addressing more the kind of the, uh, the material inequalities than the, um, than the symbolic uh, level that, that Tariq started with. But it seems to me that we have to do something about the racial and cultural inequalities in our societies. And this means, among other things, abandoning simplistic ideas that racial or religious or cultural identity either doesn't or shouldn't matter. Right. So in that sense, I'm completely with the significance of group identities in politics and the kind of the, the danger of somehow trying to write them out of the picture. I'm entirely with Tariq Madud on that. Um, the only point at which we could say these group identities don't matter, have become irrelevant, is when they genuinely have become so. Right. So when we've achieved a rough parity between people in terms of employment, income, political representation symbolic uh, representation, um, and when particular subgroups are no longer more exposed to violence or harassment than others, right? We're clearly a long way short of that. Uh, so we need more people from these groups acting and speaking in politics, 
and we can expect them, among other things, to give voice to previously unrecognized needs and concerns. But the moment we take them as the voice of their communities, as the representatives of their group, we are falling into that error of thinking about them as the representatives of some kind of single self-constituted group. We're heading towards what critics of multiculturalism, I think, would rightly condemn, taking the dominant, established, and possibly most conservative voices of a community and giving them power to determine what happens within their group. Now that, I mean, I, I know that this isn't what you have in mind, right? Um, but it seems to me that in what, in what you've said so far, that you haven't given enough attention to the very real dangers of the notion of informal and formal representation of groups, the very real dangers that that, that would generate precisely this kind of formalization of um, a kind of group representation that basically gives voice and authority to the established and dominant members of groups. So, so it seems to me that we need to find a way of thinking about multiculturalism which recognizes the kind of the crucial importance of creating a form of citizenship and a form of politics in which we are able, all of us, to participate as equals. Um, and that in doing that, we clearly have to recognize the significance of group identities in the ways in which people will mobilize politically, but we have to be very wary of the notion of representation of groups. Okay, I, I start from um, so the, the starting point for political theory is I've got a simple one, which is that uh, cultural diversity is a, is a fact, as is moral pluralism generally, and, and it's, it's not a fact to be, uh, to be regretted, but to be welcomed. The interesting question, and I, I think I'm gonna, going to repeat some of the things that uh, Anne has just said, but the interesting question is what was the appropriate political response to this fact? And so I'm interested in multiculturalism as, as, um, as a policy. So that's what I will focus on. I'd like to start with uh, two general comments about multiculturalism. Uh, and here I'm, I'm in very broad agreement with, uh, with Tarek. I really like the way in which, uh, in his presentation, he made a strong link between uh, multiculturalism and integration. Rather, he presented multiculturalism as one of the modes of integration that are possible, uh, presumably that can be compatible with others as well. So they're not mutually exclusive, if I follow your reasoning. So I basically agree with this. My, my, my terminology is slightly di different, but, but I think we, we agree on, on two points I like to make, so two preliminary points. First one is, of course, uh, integration can be uh, multicultural. So in other words, policies can be integrationist, yet culturally sensitive. So the point of these policies of, of integration is to make sure that racial or religious or cultural differences are not an obstacle to integration, and that's very much the rationale for anti-racism policies, anti-discrimination policies, 
and the reasonable accommodation of, say, religious practices uh, in the workplace. So you might argue that the rationale for this is simply to say that in European law, uh, in European current law and practice, members of religious minorities face a disproportionate cost or burden in the exercise of their basic religious rights. And this is because European public spheres are culturally Christian, so things like the structure of the week or dress codes will inevitably be marked by this heritage. So clearly if you're Muslim, you can't pray on Friday and work a normal working week, whereas if you're Christian, typically you can. So that's, that's a sense in which uh, the secular public sphere is not, is not neutral. And I think this kind of approach, which is individualized, and pragmatic can address quite a number of inequalities of, uh, in, 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 uh, in religious practice within uh, the workplace in particular. But the aim is clear. The aim is to integrate everybody on fair terms uh, in the workplace, in schools, etc. So that's the a, that's a first point. Integration can be and must be culturally sensitive in this way. Second point, well, clearly there are some multicultural practices that are not compatible with integration. There's a the kind of multicultural um, uh, practices that are fostered in certain discrete communities, so ranging from uh, radicalized Salafi to Orthodox Jews to perhaps more controversially the gated communities of the super-rich. And I think class Segregation is uh, still a much more serious problem than cultural segregation. But all the same, I think there are instances of non-integrationist communitarianism. And this can be sometimes fostered by uh, current policies. Um, I have in mind here, so that's a polemical point, but I have in mind here this, this speech that David Cameron um, gave a few years ago and uh, Catherine uh, Commented, um, um, mentioned just earlier. And there was a speech denouncing multiculturalism, and I, and I think that's a, was a kind of an irony or a paradox in that speech because at very much the same time, uh, the, the, the government was, was uh, promoting what was called the Big Society Agenda, which really involved the delegation of state functions to free schools, faith groups, local communities, and businesses and the partial substitution of privately funded, locally run, and group-specific schemes for publicly funded egalitarian universal access public services. And I think that's, that's a worrying trend in a sense. If there is a crisis of multiculturalism, I think that's where, that's where it is in, in this, this state-promoted policies that encourage people uh, no longer to mingle and mix and work together, but rather to set up their own little private communities catering for their own and cultivating their own parochial identities and priorities, be they uh, white middle class or Muslim or evangelical or whatever. So this is perhaps, you might think, that's a polemical point and it's polemical use of the term multiculturalism. So now I want to, to, to turn to the um, more standard definition of multiculturalism, which I understand to mean the deliberate promotion of group identity by the state as opposed to in a big society agenda you might, you might say that's not actually deliberate it might be one of the consequences of this but it is not deliberate. So I want now to turn to what we, what we mean and what I think Tariq has in mind when he talks about a multicultural policy. 
So we talk about public recognition, we talk about state support, but what does that mean? So what, what would it take for a state to support and promote, a, say, a religious group? Now, again, this recognition would have to be above and beyond the reasonable accommodation I started with, which, as I explained, are perfectly compatible with, with what Tariq calls individualistic integration. This recognition would also have to be above and beyond what Tariq interestingly refers to as the, ma the macro-symbolic dimension of national identity, and I fully agree with him that one of the challenges of our time is to think of national identity as a plural identity. Uh, and uh, be, I think you know, all of us, the Brits, should think of ourselves as living in a society that is proudly uh, multicultural. Uh, and you mentioned Danny, Danny Boyle, and my example is a Muslim female stand-up comedian, Shazia Mirza, who's currently on tour in this country, and she's, uh, she's very funny. Uh, so this is all very well, and this has to happen in multicultural society. It just has nothing to do with state policy. So I really want to focus on what I think, where I think the issues are. Clearly, the fact that society is multicultural, and proudly so, doesn't mean that the state should consolidate those identities. And I think that's where there is a, there is a shift between ease and ought, between the reality of multicultural uh, hybridity and integration. There's a gap between this reality and what uh, the state should do about it. So what kind of policies of positive recognition are we talking about? And I just want to, Tariq said he wanted to leave that up for discussion, so I will uh, take, take him up on this and very much follow uh, Anne's lead here. And uh, I think some of the arguments are quite similar. So I want to discuss four policies that actually are, are, have been mentioned by Tariq, not today, but I think defended by him in, in other works. And I want to show that it's actually quite legitimate to reach different judgments about them. So we can say, we can, we can have different judgments about different policies, right? So that allows us to avoid making big judgments about the big isms, right? So the question is not whether you are for or against that thing that is called multiculturalism. I think it's much more productive to try to identify exactly what we're talking about and what are the arguments for or against particular policies. So I just want to move away, uh, away from the big isms uh, generally. So what kind of re recognition are we talking about? I like to distinguish, for want of better words, I, I don't really know whether that's the right way to, to explain what I have in mind, but I want to distinguish between functional and political recognition. So what would be a functional recognition? Well, this is a rec recognition for a specific purpose. In particular, in the case that I'm concentrating on the recognition of religious groups, it would be a recognition for a specific purpose that is connected to the public role and function of religious groups. Right? So that would be a functional in that sense. Right? Two types here, two types of functional representation. One of them would be community-specific, and the other one would be society-wide. Again, they're not great labels, but hopefully when I explain them, they, they make sense. Community-specific, it's simply the, the fact that a state that is committed to, making, to protecting religious freedom will have to make sure that each community can uh, follow um, 
the religious, the, the practices that it is committed to in an atmosphere of, 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 of support. So clearly in many cases there are specific religious needs concerning burial, the building of uh, synagogues and mosques and churches, uh, the provision of halal and kosher meat. These are things that are community-specific. Religious groups need to have them organized by the state or at least to have the proper legislation to uh, make sure that they happen under the right circumstances. Um, and clearly there is a role for the state in making sure that religious communities are properly recognized, that they are leaders to the community, that state officials can talk to to make sure these things happen in the right way. Um, and much of what goes by the label religious recognition actually takes this form, and this is the case uh, in so-called secular countries such as France, which has for a long time had for a long time a, a, a representative councils for Jews and more recently for Muslims, very much, I think, geared towards these community-specific needs. Second time of functional recognition would be a more society-wide uh, recognition, and here this answers the, the thought that religious groups can contribute to certain public debates. I'm thinking here of things like bioethics committees, um, um, forums for interfaith dialogue, uh, and clearly here the public role of religions in those debates, those public debates, is also recognized even in some secular states. And here it's quite interesting to compare the, the um, composition of bioethics committees in, in France and in the UK, where contrary to what one might expect from a more secular country, presumably such as France, that there is, there is more of a, of a functional role for religious bodies to deliberate on bioethics than there actually is in this country. It's quite interesting. Um, so these are advisory bodies. Obviously, they're not, they don't make legislation, but it's perfectly acceptable uh, about for debates where public reason can be quite indeterminate, it's perfectly acceptable to have a plurality of voices among which religious voices will, will, be, um, will, will, be, will be present. So functional recognition raises issues, of course, you know, everything does in a sense, but as a general principle, this seems to be you know, perfectly, perfectly fine. The second time of recognition I want to talk about briefly is political recognition. And here I think uh, uh, it's quite uh, similar to some of the points that Anne was making. I want to distinguish two types. So think of national representation, because here we're in the realm of representation, not, not simply recognition by the state, but representation of a community. First one is national representation, and then briefly a local representation. So here, what I have in mind is the presence of religious groups as groups in national representative democratic assemblies um, or semi-democratic assemblies. Uh, example, the House of Lords uh, in, in this country. And I know Tariq has argued that... Um, insofar as establishment is legitimate in this country, then it should take the form of multi-establishment. Right? So if there is a case for the Anglican Church to be represented within the state, then ipso facto, uh, on egalitarian grounds, you might argue there's no reason why other 
religious groups should be excluded from such bodies. And I have no, you know, no problem with the formerly egalitarian logic of this, but it seems to me to, to beg the, the, the question, which is, that, you know, is it legitimate for the Anglican Church and for Anglican bishops to be represented in the House of Lords in the first place? And here, I, uh, we've had this discussion before, but um, it seems to me that equality is not always about equalizing upward, to use the, the phrase, Sometimes equality will involve equalizing downwards rather than upwards. So instead of generalizing existing systems of privileges to all religion, you might want to think that actually removing the privileges uh, is the best way to achieve equality. And in this particular case, that might be, I mean, again, I'm just giving you my, my own reasoning about this, but there, there is scope for legitimate democratic disagreement on this. Um, but the question is, is quite a specific one, is are the interests of democratic representation best served by having the representation of religious leaders in the House of Lords? And uh, this is, you can see how this is quite different from functional representation. And I think part of the confusion of this debate sometimes, the two tend to be conflated, right? But I think they're actually quite different in what they do. Uh, there's a legitimate debate about the House of Lords because... Um, in some occasions, the bishops in the House of Lords have exercised a veto power on the democratic will. So in January 2010, the bishops were pivotal in defeating a proposal in the Equality Bill that would have defined the class of posts for which the religious exemption from anti-discrimination law would apply. Briefly, uh, local representation. Obviously, there's, there's a long-standing British practice of giving granting quite a lot of power to community leaders locally, and this is um, in the interest of both community cohesion and, and social peace, and you know, to some extent that, that, that is fine, but the question is similar to the one that uh, Anne raised, which is you know, can a leader represent a whole group with a variety of people that he, usually he, uh, is supposed to stand for? So the problem with this form of representation it's the same problem as with any form of, say, corporatist uh, representation. That often the, the leaders are not democratically elected. There's a tendency to essentialize the community and its needs. Uh, it may silence dissident voices. It tends to religionize social and political issues as well. It's more, more perverse uh, side effect. And to, typically to reinforce the power of uh, often male uh, elites. Finally, and to conclude, I could add perhaps a third type of recognition. Um, so in addition to functional and political uh, recognition, I would briefly like to raise one that has not been mentioned in debates about multiculturalism as such, at least in the kind of first wave, but I think it's now becoming more and more prominent. And I want to call it again, for lack of a better word, a legal representation. And this is the form of collective exemptions from the law. And it seems to me that's the most thorny issue for defenses of multiculturalism is what Anne was referring to as the minorities within minorities problem or put differently the clashes between multicultural recognition and gender and sexual equality. So two, two questions here. First one is, um, should religious organizations be allowed 
to exempt themselves from equality provisions regarding sex, sexualities, and marriage? And second question, should religious courts, tribunals, be granted autonomy in matters of, say, family law? Now, for, for what it's worth, my, my own position in, in, on both these matters is, is quite uh, minimalist. So in the, the first case, I think I can see a, a justification for a narrowly construed, what, the, what, the, what Americans call a ministerial exemption, right? So you can't, you, clearly you can't force the Catholic Church or the Muslim community to appoint women as priests or imams. That's the core of the doctrine, is that the leader, the religious leader, should be a man. But I think beyond that, beyond this narrowly construed ministerial exemption, there's really little reason why women or homosexuals should be excluded from other non-core functions, uh, uh, social functions that happen to be taken care of by faith groups. And I'm thinking of education and social work and so forth. Family law, I think there is a case for saying that there should be some recognition of, of religious courts. It's important for religious believers to, be, to feel that they can settle disputes uh, about uh, marriage, uh, childcare, um, um, divorce, etc., in accordance with the dictates of their religion. So I think there is a role for religious courts, but with one important uh, proviso, I think, that, that civil law is ultimately uh, sovereign so that women in particular can always appeal against the decision of a religious tribunal in a civil court because otherwise in, in a system of what has been called by um, Ayelet Sasha she calls the multicultural jurisdictions I think in such a system multiculturalism might end up being very bad for women and gays so it seems to me that's where the debates about multiculturalism are, are now and I'd be Curious to hear what Tariq uh, has to say about them. So uh, perhaps we should uh, start the debate uh, among the three of you, but also uh, perhaps I could take a few questions. Um, we, are, we are much short of time, so... <clears throat> So we have very little time for the debate, uh, so we'll be uh, straight, so maybe 10 minutes for a short discussion among you, and then uh, questions from the floor. Um, okay, well, perhaps I could um, pick up one or two things that have been said and, and respond to, to them. Um, I, I guess... Um, the kind of thing I would pick up most from what Anne was saying, um, very much the issue of what if you're a minority within a minority? What if people who are speaking in your name and being empowered by other people because they're taken to be representatives for people like you um, might actually be... Um, not very appreciative of, of your views or of s certain uh, things about you. Well, I mean, I actually uh, came to these issues, you know, issues of uh, racial equality and multiculturalism, through exactly this kind of process. Um, 
because it wasn't through um, you know, doing a particular degree or PhD or a particular course that I uh, came into this work. It was because I got into some uh, racial equality, um, initially kind of you know, voluntary civil society type uh, work, and, but then professionally I was working f- uh, in um, for, uh, equal opportunities work. And there were people who had this idea that I was black and there were various other people who were black. In fact, anyone who wasn't white was black. And that, <laughs> and that they spoke, these people spoke on our behalf for our empower- empowerment. They were our champions. And in um, the, I think it was the 19... 19- 84 election and in the kind of politics leading up to that, especially in the Labour Party, so in the sort of 18 months up to the, not 84, 87 election. Uh, In fact, it was the famous election where four non-white members of parliament got elected. Um, You know, Bernie Grant, Paul Botang, Diane Abbott and Keith Vaz. The first time non-white people had sat in Westminster for 30, 40, 50 years. And um, so there was this black sections debate in the Labour Party. And I felt that these people were talking about me and kind of adding me as a kind of statistical counter in their uh, adding up as to who they represented, but they didn't speak for me. And I, you know, made a noise about it. I protested, I wrote, and I argued with them, of course, when the opportunity arose. And... One of the things that that led to was alternative uh, identities, alternative political identities. People, um, including myself, you know, we started thinking of ourselves as Asian, as British Asians. Other people then said, oh, well, we're actually Indians and Pakistanis. Other people said we're Sikhs and Muslims and so on. So there was a kind of proliferation of political identities. So it wasn't the case that if the Labour Party, or not just the Labour Party, various aspects of society, said, oh, we recognise some people as a group, that that is the end of the matter. The democratic process, if there, of course, are proper resources for um, democratic contestations and uh, you know, what we might call voice, uh, where, the, where that exists, and of course I'm assuming that kind of background when I talk about uh, equality, liberty, and fraternity, and so on. So I'm not saying that multiculturalism starts from zero. It starts as an outgrowth of those uh, modes of integration that I was talking about. Um, it, so it is true that sometimes groups can be highly simplistic, highly crude as to who they're representing and the, the kind of understanding they offer of a group. This, this can be true of class-based groups. I certainly remember uh, that was the case um, some decades ago in particular in, in, in politics and so on. And as I say, we noticed it with things like black sections. I think there are a number of Muslim groups that have exactly the same kind of uh, reductionism about group identity. But having made the point that I think that uh, minorities within minorities can speak out and can be recognized and can achieve voice, I suppose the point I'd like to make 
is when I kind of try to analyze, well, how did that happen? What exactly is the, the logic of what, is, what has happened? I feel that I can't understand it in terms of the other three modes of integration. So that we need some idea of uh, group representation even to understand how minorities, how dissident minorities are to express themselves as dissident minorities. So gay people in a conservative religious community who want to speak out, they, they will speak out as gay people. So the very logic of protest is actually using the logic that I was referring to when I was talking about uh, group representation. So I guess my point uh, in relation to that is that I'm not saying it will always happen and there aren't oppressed minorities. Of course, I couldn't possibly um, say that. But it can be pragmatically efficacious to use this uh, logic of uh, group identity, of group politics, and group representation. And it's a logic which, if it has some democratic uh, place, cannot be understood in terms of the other uh, democratic modes. So I'll also make one point in relation to something that Cecile raised. In fact, I'll take the point um, that you raised relatively at the start of your talk about, yes, we need to be thinking about new forms of national identity, you know, pluralist forms of national identity, and, you know, Shazia Mirza is a very good example of how she places herself both, as it were, within relatively easily understood uh, British frames of reference and outside them. And, of course, it's the boundary and the juxtaposition that she gets so much of her uh, laughs. But these laughs, of course, have a point. They have a point about making us rethink about stereotypes, about boundaries and exclusions, and therefore open the way to uh, pluralizing identities. So Cecile and I, we both, that's the bit we agree on. But Cecile then said, well, what role has the state got to do here? Why, why are we bringing the state in? Yes, I, I think the state does have a role. In fact, I think it has several roles. Um, because, of course, we have official ways of talking about ourselves talking about ourselves as a country. We, we can talk about ourselves as a country, you know, in this room. People can talk about uh, ourselves as a country when they write a novel. But we also have people who represent us officially and collectively and democratically, and in the case of our head of state, perhaps not democratically. But nevertheless, they represent us. They have a view of what the country is. They present that. And they don't just present it in terms of speech meaning propositions. They represent it through ceremony. They represent it on who is present on certain, certain occasions, what, what dresses worn, what symbols are appealed to, what little bits of our shared history are highlighted and what are not mentioned, and so on. So, yes, this, this is the state working. You know, Queen Elizabeth II is part of the state. If she's on television or if she's featuring in a, a Danny Boyle um, extravaganza, 
Well, yes, that, that, is, that is our state saying something about what it is to be British. And we do need that. We need political leadership. It's not just a matter of laissez-faire or what uh, some people call multicultural drift. I think we, we need political leadership and we need it sometimes in institutionalized ways. And one other thing before I stop I'll just say, which is of course a massive thing where the state has a role, is schooling. We have to decide what is and is not taught in schools. We're arguing a lot at the moment about history because um, the Minister of State, Michael Gove, has a very strong view about how history should be taught. And a lot of people think that this is a, uh, a narrative, a national story, that is uh, understating the contemporary plurality and that, of course, our history has to reflect where we are today and where we want to go, where we hope to go, where we hope to be heading. So the history isn't just a dead past, the bits of it that we decide to select and highlight, for instance, about the British Empire. This is very important in telling a story about who we are. And it's the state. It is elected politicians, civil servants, official educators, and so on, who will make the decisions and who will shape what is taught in schools, as well as, of course, individual uh, teachers in interaction in classes and so on. So, yes, I think in remaking the national identity and so on, the state has a role. Thank you very much, Tariq and uh, Anne and uh, Cecile. I think we give the, the floor uh, possibility to ask questions now because there has been a consensus. I think I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> More of a consensus <laughs> than you, you wanted. Yes. So please, please <laughs> yes, bring in yes. questions that will provoke a bit more <laughs> debate. Yes. Um, shall I start here? Yes, this gentleman over there. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I'd just like to make a few comments, if I may. Um, you talk about my, minorities in, in, within minorities. I mean, if you, look, if you look at the city of Leicester, the white indigenous population are already the minor, minority. Second comment I'd like to make is that the statistic in London, which was announced by the BBC a few weeks ago, is that the white population in London is now the minority. So maybe in 10 years' time we'll be talking about the white have got a problem in terms of multiculturalism. I'd like to say another couple of comments as well, is that if you politicise colour, race and everything, it becomes a problem. The Conservative Party just recently at the last election tried to parachute various women and races into constituencies and it upset uh, the indigenous population because they thought that they had a man on the ground or a woman on the ground because they were local, they knew the area, but they parachuted these various uh, people into uh, the constituencies because it was politically correct to do so and it upset a lot of pop, uh, communities, so much so that there are a few members of parliament who are sitting there today who probably won't get re-elected by their own constituents because they feel that head office had a say in the matter. <laughs> Do you want to reply to that? Um, well, I, I'll, I'll certainly say something about the statistics and the BBC, and it wasn't just the BBC. Um, I actually think the origins of it go back to the, um, the way the official uh, Office of National Statistics released the statistics, in particular their press release, you know, because one of the kind of headlining of the press release was that 
white British people are a minority in London. 45% they said. Well, of course, virtually everybody, certainly the media, interpreted that to mean, as I think you've done, that white people are a minority in London. But that's not what the Office of National Statistics said. They said white British people are a minority. In fact, white people are 63% of London. So, I mean, I don't know why the Office of National Statistics did, did it like that, or why our public commentators are so statistically illiterate that they, you know, that they have to rely on press releases that they don't question and can't tell the difference between white people and white British people. Um, about certain people being parachuted into constituencies in order to increase the representation of certain minorities and actually uh, gender uh, is one of the things that the political parties are particularly concerned about, the underrepresentation of women in uh, elected office holding. Um, well, I, I think that some leadership like that is needed in all political parties. There is uh, underrepresentation. Um, of course, there are values in having pe local people stand in constituencies. Obviously, they know the place, they have support. Um, but on the other hand, we do have national parties, and they've got to think nationally and not just uh, locally. I personally think we wouldn't have quite the same problems if we had multi-member constituencies, as, of course, a lot of countries do. I think we make things worse for ourselves. I mean, I can see some arguments for it, but I, on the whole, I prefer proportional representation for a number of reasons, of which one is that proportional representation where, say, five people are nominated for a five-member constituency, you know, be a large constituency roughly the size of a London borough, say. Uh, each party would then make an effort to create, you know, what we might refer to as a balanced ticket or a plural ticket. And I think then we wouldn't have quite this degree of, you know, it's a bit like putting two rats into a cage or more than two rats, you know, lots of this uh, aggression to get one place, uh, especially the party that has the most chance of winning, winning that seat. So I think that this is an unfortunate byproduct of our electoral system and is not a condemnation of the goal of um, having a plurality of voices and people and backgrounds in politics. Uh, would you like to...? No, I think we should ask someone. Yes, uh, the lady in green over there, please. At the top. Maybe they could introduce themselves. Yes. No, no, that's no, no, that's not blue. green. The lady in green at the <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's not a question, it's really a comment. I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about um, is the space that we had to do some of the things that you're talking about, which was under the development of equality policies, where there was kind of um, looking at groups but consulting. And I know it didn't work very well in trying to you know, implement those in my university as an equality person. But I think there was this space in which we recognized group differences, but the idea was to consult and hear a variety of voices, to have, you know, the kind of politics which was about change. And I think 
that was much stronger in the original 2010 Equality Act and the way in which the coalition government has undermined that. So you're not required to consult. You don't have to do um, impact assessment. So you don't have to hear different voices. So I think for me, working kind of in this field and wanting to promote it is the sort of act is there, but the kind of spaces to do multicultural work, to, but to hear different voices for what does that mean for, if you wanted to say, black women or Asian women or, or gays in that, in developing policies, like whether it was your, in the context of a university or in other public sectors. I think that space is really gone um, or, or has closed off um, where we could do some of those things. So I think it's a, it was a way that we could merge some of the, the issues that Anne was raising about whose voices. And it wasn't working perfectly, but I think that sort of equality approach did provide some way of kind of engaging. So, um, yes, okay. This uh, gentleman here with um, glasses. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, well, I uh, don't normally agree with anything that Tarek uh, says. <laughs> No, not even the words and or the, but uh, I, I was interested in his remarks about black sections because the chair of black sections was my local councillor, and uh, I sought his expulsion from the Labour Party because he constantly used the word racist and racism, and that's the only words he ever used. Nevertheless, I failed. However, I want to come back to the question of what we mean by multiculturalism because it has two separate meanings. One is lived social experience, and one is state ideology. And which one are you actually talking about? You seem to be talking about you, you, you are promoting a social experience through the state. And that's something which must be opposed because part of the problem of multiculturalism is that it actually promotes identity uh, beyond all other things and creates a sense of grievance. And it creates uh, identity as, a, as, a, as an organizing principle which conflates all kinds of things. For example, it conflates religion and ethnicity. And there is a difference between religion as faith and religion as identity. Uh, Cecile's, Cecile's demands for religious accommodation, I, I think, will, will not go down very well because most people in this country, including most minority religions, are not actually observing their faith. It may be the case that some religious leaders are claiming to represent these people, but most people are not actually practicing their own faith, whether that's Christian, Muslim, Jewish, or whatever. So I don't think we should be actually having more reasonable competition. We should have a secular space where people can practice their faith in the private sphere without any state interference or without any state help. That's the best model to follow. And let me just uh, look, uh, go to the issue of segregation, because obviously we are living in an increasingly segregated society, socially segregated. But multiculturalism will not actually deal with the objective social conditions in any way, except to actually promote a sense of, of uh, victimhood and grievance. And let me just ask you, uh, Anne, uh, let me just ask Anne, Anne Phillips, do you have anything to say about the fact that there has not been a single prosecution for uh, female genital mutilation on the grounds of, quote, cultural sensitivity, unquote? That's not true. So maybe Cecil would like to... Me? Yes? Well, I'd like to... You, you yes. like to, yes. Uh, I'd okay. like to say something about... Um, something you said early, early on, because I think actually you raised something quite importantly when you said, which multiculturalism am I talking about? Is it the lived experience or the ideology and so on? Well, 
I, I would make um, a three-part rather than just a, a two-part distinction. I think that multiculturalism obviously is a body of ideas. You know, there'd be nothing to talk about if there weren't some guiding ideas, and I tried to express those uh, briefly in relation to, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity, uh, and related ideas, uh, related modes of integration. Secondly, I think there are policies, um, and, and, you know, we, we could talk about a, a number of them. And thirdly, I think there is what we might call um, discourses or climate of opinion. And my own view, and this is really answering the question of this meeting, is multiculturalism dead, is that if we make this three-part distinction, actually, I think multiculturalism is doing fairly well with the first two. It's the public opinion, understanding of multiculturalism, that obviously is so negative. Um, But in terms of policies, I mean, a lot of politicians, and I'll just give one example, a lot of politicians put in place policies, whether they call them multiculturalism or not, that's in effect what they're doing. Cecile referred to David Cameron's big society idea. And, of course, as we know, David Cameron is against state multiculturalism. So big society consists, well, various policies, but its flagship policy is what it, what it called um, uh, free schools or, or something schools anyway, where the state puts in a lot of money into community-organized schools. You know, people put forward a proposal uh, and the state uh, sees whether it's viable and if they think it's viable. They put in quite a lot of money and give it independent governance, independent of local authority and, for that matter, any national authority. And... If we look at these schools that have been approved under this scheme, something like, I don't know the precise figure, somewhere like 170 to 200 schools have been approved um, since the scheme started after the last election. And about a quarter are schools run by a faith organization, you know, a church or a Muslim organization or a Hindu Uh, temple organization, which is roughly, actually, the proportion of uh, state schools that are funded by, uh, sorry, faith schools that are funded by the state. So this free, uh, this new big society idea, which is against state multiculturalism, is producing a very similar proportion of faith schools funded by the state, but actually it is a lot more multiculturalist than the, what New Labour was able to achieve because more minority faiths are being included in that 25% that are, being, that are being approved. So what is this? This is the state, i.e. putting in money to create a multiculturalist or multi-faith outcome. I mean, surely that is state multiculturalism regardless of what David Cameron calls it. There are so many uh, hands, and we have about two minutes left. So at random, closing my eyes, I will ask this uh, young gentleman here to ask the last question. I'm terribly sorry because we are limited in time tonight. Um, Hello. (coughs) I was just wondering, with Ted Cantor's perceived failure of multiculturalism, do you think community cohesion is the new assimilation? Can you speak up, please? Do you think community 
cohesion is the new assimilation? Um, I have a view on that. Yes, <laughs> but but may, that maybe, maybe you have a view. Not on this. No? no? <laughs> Uh, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, presumably we've just we're in our last comments now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So can can I? I think the thing I just wanted to say is that I think that we're 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 still in a discourse where where people get terribly agitated about something called multiculturalism, which actually has not been practiced. I mean, I really do not think that the kinds of policies that either uh, Cecile or Tariq has been talking about really constitute something called a deliberate promotion of group identity, for example, or really constitute a corporatist representation of cultural groups. That, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of it's as though people get very agitated about something that uh, I would argue against, but I don't think is what uh, actually exists in current society. Just to specifically answer the question about FGM, I think everyone who works in this field says the problem about prosecuting people uh, who, have, who have taken their daughters for female genital cutting, the problem is not cultural sensitivity. The problem is that, A, uh, children don't want their parents prosecuted, and, B, social workers don't want children taken away from their parents, which is what happens if you criminalize parents. So I don't think it's a question of cultural sensitivity. Well, of course they... Uh, if, no, I don't think you blame it on multiculturalism. I think you blame it on child, child protection. I think people think that there's a much more ingrained multiculturalism than there actually is. But. Cecile, would you like to say a few words to... I just, uh, I just like to pick up two, two points that were made. Um, one was uh, in Tariq's uh, response to um, the things I said about uh, national identity. Uh, it probably was a misunderstanding, probably didn't explain it clearly, but it, it really that is an area where there is no disagreement between us. Um, I do think there is a very, very important role for political leadership in making sure that there is a, a kind of state speech of a pluralized national identity. So I'm, I'm fully with you, and, and the, the, the comments I made were, as I said, they were above and beyond symbolic recognition, assuming that we agree on that. So that, 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 that was the, what was intended by the above and, uh, and beyond. Um, and I think political leaders in particular in, in the current context do have, in addition to this, a responsibility in not blaming multiculturalism and not blaming also immigration for a crisis that is primarily a social and economic crisis and I think that's quite frightening at the moment is the way in which those issues are used as scape, you know, scapegoating for uh, social problems that really have very little to do with those. Uh, second point is I want to pick up the, the point about reasonable accommodation. The fact that members of religious group do not practice their religion is no objection to reasonable accommodation because reasonable accommodation doesn't give rights to a group. It's an individual accommodation. So it can't be an objection to it so that people have different degrees of practice. It is only, it is only granted on a, on a case-by-case basis and, and only to individuals when they request it. Thank you very much.